0: Welcome to the Directors UK podcast.
1: Today's episode comes from a Q&A event with Dominic Cook, the director of Unchisel
0: Beach. Dominic spoke to director Gillies McKinnon about the film coming from a theatrical background and working with Ian McEwan. If you like what you hear, don't forget to leave us a review or subscribe to the podcast.
1: Thanks for coming.
2: Uh- First of all, I just would like to say that I really enjoyed the film, and thank you for an enormously enjoyable film. Thank you. Um, I think that my first question, personally, has got to do with your theatrical background, you know, and and coming to make a a film for the first time. And I think because the audience is essentially directors, um, it'd be quite interesting to know what was going on in your head you know having done a lot of theater and established yourself in theater to make that break which i think you did incredibly successfully by the way but i'm just quite interested in what the thinking was i think that would be a good thing
1: well it was mainly um oh how do i say this with whilst being diplomatic i've observed that a lot of theater directors exclusively directors of theater who haven't written when they get older, they can become quite bitter. And I was reflecting on why this was. (laughs) And I think it's often, of course I don't want to generalize, but it's often because your work is totally ephemeral. So, you know, you do a lifetime's work, it goes up in a puff of smoke, the young generation come through. They have no, they've often not seen your best work, and actually, you're not leaving any kind of a legacy. I mean, I think obviously you do. Ephemeral, uh, the ephemeral nature of theatre is great. Actually, it's it's what it's about. It's about a live event. It happens once, um, and that's it. But there's part of us, I think, that wants to leave something more concrete behind. And I was not particularly drawn to work in film initially. Partly, my dad was a film editor, and I just didn't want to do what my dad did. And I, what appealed to me about theater was the the simplicity of it, you know, the directness of it. But as time went on, I ran a theater, and then um, I started to become frustrated by the thing of going back, to see a show and it changing and having to go back to square one again, halfway through a run when you've already worked your ass off trying to get it there. So those things really started to add up and actually it really was, a lot of it was about trying to make something that would be permanent in a way and, and arrive at a given point when it's finished. And those two things were really important to me. And um, I've really enjoyed, I mean, obviously it's been a steep learning curve, but I've really enjoyed making that transition.
2: <clears throat> okay, well that's that's great. Now, I mean, on the kind of aesthetics, if you like, you know, I mean, how did you make your decisions about how the film is going to look, you know, the tone of the film? I mean, I know there was some um, conversation about holding shots, you know, which seems to maybe come from your theatrical back background. I mean, I didn't particularly notice that the shots were held a long time in, in the cut, but obviously this was something that was happening between you you. And the actors, you know, that they felt appreciative that you were giving them space to, to, to just let the shot go. Mm. Uh, and how does that affect you rhythmically, if you like? Because the theatre rhythm is so specific. It starts there and it ends there. With film, we're continually kind of playing with rhythm, uh, I mean, just see if there's anything there to talk about. Uh,
1: well, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I did these three Shakespeare films for television before I did this. So that was a kind of back, to, back to baptism of fine terms of working with a camera. And what we did partly because we had no time um, to do that is, and we were tracking, say in one of those scenes, we had like seven or eight people whose stories were not necessarily relevant in that scene, but two and a half hours later, they would be. So we had to track reactions from seven or eight people. And they all required, therefore, you know, shots, often single shots, so we could we could tell those stories. So uh, the mix of the lack of time and the particular nature of that story meant we had at least two cameras going the whole time. We shot on digital, which meant that when we were doing battle sequences that went, you know, and we had no, we were doing like battle sequences on a feature would take two weeks in one day and you'd just keep rolling and go, go,
2: right! with the horses <laughs> it was like
1: yeah. five to six you know it was very pragmatic but the result of that was that we were we were uh th- the finished thing was bang bang lots and lots of cuts it was all made in the edit it was very jumpy and bouncy and all of that and um, like a lot of contemporary television is and part of what i wanted to do part of the reason i wanted to do something more economical was I just wanted to do the complete opposite which was to try and make something with a minimal number of setups, so that I had to think very carefully about where the camera was. And I spoke to uh, Sean Bobby, a brilliant cinematographer, about, about doing that. And we watched an awful lot of period movies from the early 60s. And when you watch something like The Misfits, which was made this, in this, the year that this was set, in very difficult circumstances, famously, it's amazing how John Huston you know, barely cuts. I mean, he owned, there's only a, there's only an edit when it's absolutely necessary for the story. So we we kind of vowed that we would try as much as possible to be economical with our with the use of the camera and um, and do as many scenes as we could in one setup. So there are a lot of scenes which only you know only, only had one setup. In terms of the long takes, I mean, the main the main example of that is the scene on the beach where we did do lots of setups because it's quite a long scene. But we I didn't. We just ran the scene, and uh, and the reason for that was I just thought there's no way the actors are going to be able to get to the emotional temperature that they need in the middle of the Absolutely. scene. So, so a, a lot of it was about that, allowing them to work organically. So there were two two reasons for it, um, and then and then in terms of the other visuals for the film, one of the main ideas that I was working with, Sean, the costume and set designer. Um, on was this idea that these two people were in the wrong place at the wrong time. So that all the interiors and all the worlds that they were in were from their parents and grandparents and nothing felt like it was of their making. Because that seemed to me to be such an important idea in the film that they're inheriting a whole load of story and narrative and anxiety that has been passed down to them from a emotionally inhibited country. And yeah. you know, two generations of people have gone through world wars and don't know how to express feeling. Um, and, um, and and so we worked as hard as we could to create these environments that felt alien. And we accentuated that with color, and so that was the kind of
2: key visual idea, really. Well, <clears throat> one of the things, um, I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but I remember 1962 very well, you know. and um, And I also remember 1976 very well. And I thought you did catch a feeling of these times, because often people don't. Especially if they haven't been there. They do the 60s and it's like, that's, we didn't feel like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I always think you got to look at films like If and Repulsion and um, Blow Up. Yeah. If you want to what it really yeah. felt like. Yeah. And I thought that you, that you really did capture a feeling. Six. That period before the Beatles came was a really not hot period, right. you know? <laughs> um, and... One of the things I really liked in the film, by the way, and I haven't read the book, so I don't know if this is reflected from the book, but there was something almost inexplicable about this relationship Mm. and the way that it went and the way that it didn't go, you know, and then they somehow or other had a life and saw each other at the end, Mm. you know, that you didn't feel tempted to try and explain what that really was, you know, you just kind of had to feel it. I mean, does that make any sense in terms of what you would have a dialogue with Ian McEwan about?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, we, there was. We, we, there was. A, there were a lot of conversations about what was going to be revealed and what was going to be held back. And there is, you know, as part of the inheritance that they're carrying in with them, it's kind of toxic inheritance. There's, uh, there was an abuse moment between the father and daughter, and that, of course, inevitably caused a huge amount of conversation and questioning, and not just in the script, but in the post-production of exactly how much was revealed and how much we left to the audience. And actually in this instance, I really uh, I really relied on what he'd done in the book because it was similarly, abstract, I mean, it's literary, but abstracted. There was the suggestion of it. And, and the reason we went for that in the end was that I felt it was important that she had been abused. In fact, the story of, the story that he, because uh, Ian was fantastically helpful because he really imagines every off, every off screen, their whole biographies, he's got the whole thing in his head. And we only relied on him when we, couldn't, when we had questions that we couldn't kind of solve ourselves or we got stuck. Uh, but on this instance, he said it was a one-off event. And I thought, well, there has to be something beyond, beyond uh, a kind of gauche inhibition around sex that would send her two miles down the beach you know, after he's ejaculated. I mean, you've got to have something that's really very potent and powerful. Um, but at the same time, if it's only about a moment of abuse, then everything else gets canceled out. You know, what he's saying about exactly that moment before the Beatles, that moment where emotionally the country, it seems to be and I, I was born a few, only a few years later, but I do remember very much the world of my grandparents, which was exactly that world you know, an incredibly uptight, um, withheld. Um, you know, the idea that feeling was un- was embarrassing and 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 awkward and shouldn't be expressed, and all of that stuff. Um, that you know, in some ways, emotionally, the country was still in the Edwardian era, and we were still living, you know, very much with post-war austerity. It was only a few years; it was only like seven or eight years since rationing had stopped. So, you know, the the shadow of the Second War and the early 19th century, uh, the early 20th century still hangs over these kids. And then of course, four or five years later, you're in a really different kind of a world. So we did we did, for example, with the design, I think what often happens with period, and this is just an observation from theatre, from working in theatre that having done period plays a lot, is that people often parody the period a bit or pastiche it a bit. And you know, you're in 1962, so everything's from 1962. And of course, most people bought their furniture in 1932 when they got married. Or, you know, so we tried very hard with Susie, our brilliant production designer and her team, to really root the choices in some kind of truth and some kind of backstory, um, especially in those families, because it seemed to me that the worlds of those families were so uh, determining for those kids. You know, the, 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 the sense of the domestic lives they have come from are really, uh, important, so yeah, we tried. I mean, is it? Yeah, we tried.
2: Yeah.
1: I remember 1976. However, I, yeah, I was there.
2: <laughs> but I mean, I thought the the change from the '62 that was the '62, wasn't it to '76 was terribly convincing to me. You know, in terms of the way everything felt. You know, <laughs> yeah. but I, I'm glad that you didn't go any further with that abuse story, mm. because I think if you had really, it would have changed it for me. Mm because you would, would have explained what was going on. Mm. And part of what I found really watchable was the kind of enigma, mm. because it was really like that in 60, mm. that, that that period. I mean, people were in the dark. Yeah. They would read a book about this, you know? Mm. I mean, I personally remember being about you know, 12 and ask myself, two boys I knew, knew about how babies were made. Yeah. And, and I, I pleaded with them to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, no. Mate, just you'd just be sick. I mean, you know, it really was like another another planet at that time, you know. So uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> but another question I have would be: I mean, there's a lot probably to be said about working with your two principals. Mm. I mean, who are excellent, really excellent. But you know, there's that pleasure when you make a film of your other cast, mm. and you're a great other cast. I mean, I worked with Anne Marie Duff, and I'm sure it was such a pleasure oh, to work with her. I I mean, they were great. I mean, it,
1: I was lucky because I wasn't under pressure. Once we'd cast Saoirse, I was, know uh, my producers just supported me in the rest of the casting, including Billy. I wasn't under pressure to cast, you know, name actors or whatever, um, which was great. So it really was a question of finding out the right people. And I mean, some of those actors I had a relationship with, I worked with Emily Watson on her very first job. She was an understudy and I was the trainee director at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, and um, so I, I went back a long way with her and Marie I hadn't worked with, but w- her first day on set was being naked in the garden. And we <laughs> we didn't know each other. I mean, she was doing a, she was doing a play in London um, and rather spectacularly agreed to do this and was commuting, you know, from, you know, from doing a huge role on stage and uh, we hadn't had time to rehearse with her at all. Uh, I had one phone conversation with her and that was it. And there she was. On the, and she was just so courageous and so open. I mean, she was wonderful. They were great. And I think Adrian Scarborough is just a, an a, amazing talent. And what my favorite scene in the film is the scene between him and his son, just before we go to 1976. And um, we got, we got to be honest, there, we got a kind of simplicity, which I was really after in the movie. And um, they just—I just knew when we were shooting it that it was right. You know, they were—they—they they were just. Both of them brought so much into that space of their relationship in the past, and that very British kind of Terence Rattigan thing of deep feeling and the inability to express it. And um, but Adrian's a remarkable. So yeah, it was—I was very
2: lucky with all those, all of that, all of those uh, the parents. Yeah. Well, just a curiosity question, um, because we've got directors out there, you know. It's coming from theatre and being very established in theatre, and coming and making your first film. What would you say was the most surprising thing about the experience? Well, I would say
1: probably that it's so enjoyable. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't say that, but the actual artistic, creative process, I've loved. I've loved every step of it. I mean, I was. I mean, I'm just. I love the feeling on a film set where everyone is just pulling together to deliver something. And sometimes the best moments are the moments where it's like the most pressurized. You know, and you think you're never going to get it done and, you know, the time's running out and it's just that amazing commitment. I found it extraordinary. And you don't get that quite the same way in
2: theatre because the process is staggered. Can I ask you about the business of the flashbacks and how that was all kind of, like, fluid and reordered? And that must have been something quite different mm. to deal with, you know? Mm. Yeah, it was tricky. And what it was, was going on there? It was tricky. I mean... Um, we had
1: to m- ensure that there was a logic, you know, to each each not only obviously each flashback, but each in, each scene within the flashbacks. And quite a few, let we we cut. There's quite there's some wonderful moments, uh, especially in Edward's family. An amazing scene with um, his dad breaking down and under pressure because the f- mother's wet herself and she he can't cope with her, and, uh, which was actually completely heartbreaking. But you know, it's that thing it diverted away from. This relationship and how the relationship was evolving, and what our understanding of you know the accumulated pressure that ended up in that room. So we we had to leave, lose a few of those things, and we did a bit of reordering in the post-production. To to you know, it was very organic. Mm-hmm. It really was very organic. I mean, a lot of it is basically shaped as it was written, but you know it. it you know what it's like. You do something and you try it, and we're the best one in the world. It actually doesn't quite jar,s and um, and we did do some pickups and pick and and, and did some uh, I don't know did some
2: link things in slightly
1: differently um, once we'd done a rough cut.
2: <coughs> and uh, I mean, I for, for myself, I always think that the basic thing about filmmaking is rhythm. Mm. You know, it's rhythm and everything. It's rhythm and camera rhythm and acting rhythm and music rhythm and sound. Rhythm and everything. Uh, Could you, I mean, is there anything to say about that in relation to theater, which is also about rhythm, but in a different way?
1: I think there are, you know, there there are obviously a whole set of skills with working on screen that are totally uh, unique, but there's a whole area of storytelling that is universal, I think. And the rhythm of a story and the natural rhythm of the best way to tell that story is something you have to master on stage as much as on screen and a lot of it is trial and error and a lot of it is um, intuitive um, but I yeah I mean it, it, it's absolutely crucial and 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 you just know when something is flowing too evenly or it's too fast or um, yeah I mean it's it's really important I mean I think I think I think I put too pressure too much pressure on myself halfway through the edit to to get to go quickly. And actually, Ian McEwen came in at one point, he said, oh, that's just too fast.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And he was right, Uh
1: he was right. And and there was a section of the film that I was just, maybe I was slightly nervous of, and I was just like, we've got to get through, you know, that thing of that, the kind of solvable thing of, if you go quickly, it'll be better. Well, of course, (laughs) it's not always the case, and actually giving air to certain thoughts and moments and beats Um, really helps the connection of the audience to the inner world of the characters you know Um, yeah
2: Uh, maybe my last question before we hand it over Mm. is um like uh, i mean i made a film once with pat barker and Mm -hmm. i didn't ask for consent on anything Mm. we just had dialogue but there was one decision that i made that i absolutely couldn't go with unless she consented I mean, that was my choice to yeah. ask her. She could have yeah. said no. Did you have that feeling when you were making this film? Yeah, I
1: mean, Ian was, was just magnificent, really. I mean, he was so, um, he did what, what I've, I mean, I've worked a lot with writers in theater, so I'm very comfortable with working alongside writers, but I was nervous about working with a novelist because I just imagine that novelists are much more introverted and private and not natural collaborators which of course isn't always the case. And you know, with Ian, he was amazingly collaborative. Um, but he did that thing that I find really useful with a collaborator, which is there were certain things he was absolutely sure should be a certain way. And because and he wrote the script, they were kind of there. And other areas where he was really open and interested to see what emerged. And um, uh, so it was, there was a lot of back and forth, but I, d- I didn't feel at any point a kind of coercion or um, a sense of, anything had to be just so. He, he was surprised, I think pleasantly, by how some things um, evolved. He watched the rushes. He, he got the rushes as they came through and was very, very supportive. Um, and gave, I found my most valuable time with him was was towards the last bit of post-production and giving notes on, you know, he'd come in and we watched it and he, we, we did one, there was one time where we watched it together just in the cutting room and stopped and started and it was a conversation. It was a conversation about should we, why are we? You know, really, really productive, really positive. And um, you know, he and also he'd give he'd give notes that were muscular. Do you know what I mean? Like things that you could take away and do something creative with, and actually you got quite excited by. You know, um, and um, I mean, I had that a bit when I did the Shakespeare with Sam Mendes, and he was making. A James Bond movie at the time, so he wasn't around very much, but he, he made some key interventions where he gave me a couple of really big thoughts that were just brilliant, because you, you longed to go back into the cutting room and try that out, you know, um, and it was a bit like that with, with Ian, so no, it was, it, was, it was really positive. Hi, first of all, I wanted
0: to say, I thought it was absolutely beautiful.
1: And oh, thank you. Movie. Thank you very much. And having read the book, I thought you captured the kind of excruciating
0: nature of that, Sexy, really well, because that's basically what the book kind of revolves around. Mm. Um, I just wanted to come back to the,
2: the theme of abuse, which oh. you, you only just touched on mm. in the film. I actually don't remember that at all from mm. the novel. Um, it wasn't foreground for me. Foreground was the kind of repression of the period and the way people so couldn't communicate because of, kind of the most of the time. But I just wanted to ask, why, why did you decide to include it? Did you think that audiences today wouldn't be able to understand kind of the extreme nature of her reaction you
1: know? Well, I mean, I, um, I I suppose I felt that, uh, um, I thought it was important that, that her particular pathology was extreme because whilst you're absolutely right, many people were deeply repressed and would, you know, I mean, she wasn't the only person who found out about sex from a book. You know, or you know, or, also, or she wasn't the only person who came from a, a family of that incredible passive aggression um, around the dinner table. Um, so there were lots of things in our background and in that time, for a middle-class young woman, which would be very awkward around sex. But what what we thought was important was. A mu- was, was something much deeper, and more pathological that needed a much more sensitive response from her husband. And equally, there were very many women who were very comfortable with sex. In fact, I, <laughs> I showed the film to a friend of mine who's a writer who was literally that age and went to you know, university at that time. And she said, we weren't like that at all. It seems a bit ridiculous to me. <laughs> it was like, oh dear, okay. Because yeah. of course, there were many people who weren't um but 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 for me obviously we have um a sense of abuse as being very separate from other of sexual abuse of, of being very sexual very separate from other forms of, of psychological abuse which i think does happen in that family deep neglect which happens in his household by by accident in a way um and i for me it's it's on a continuum of um, I mean, it's a very extreme example, don't get me wrong. Um, and, and of course, the result of it can be damaging in a way that other forms of abuse aren't, especially continual s- uh, sexual abuse of a child is, is it can be catastrophically damaging. But of, uh, I thought it was a very important part of a kind of deeply um, toxic inheritance that the two of them had to deal with. And, and, and as I was saying earlier, there was just literally the thing of, well, what what would make this woman run for two miles down the beach. You know, they wouldn't just be being uncomfortable around sex, there is something much deeper that she doesn't understand. And you know, we, the whole, our understanding of it was, and Ian was very open around this, but I, I felt very strongly that she did not, she had not recovered it, that that memory. It was there somewhere, and that's what that moment around the pier, where she hears the music that was playing on the radio at the time she was abused it's coming into the front of her mind. And of course we know this, this happens. and w- I mean I've had experience of not anything as awful as that, but of moments of my moments of my past, like extreme things that have happened as a child that I can't that I don't remember and come back at certain points. So it, it was kind of about that. Yeah, so there's something very specific and very extreme uh, as well as. The stuff that other people were dealing with, you know, they're both. I mean, the idea of in with McEwen, there's a strong thing of the moment that defines your life. And of course, at the end, at the end of the '60s, he on the beach, he makes a decision, which is catastrophic for him. He makes a decision not to go with her when she says, "Come back." Um, and that ha- that shadow hangs over his life and affects everything afterwards. But equally, the two of them—the train accident and the, that moment of abuse—they're also definitive moments that have happened to the two of them before. that that weren't their fault, you know. Any, any
2: hands? Something? Hi, I reviewed the film. It was very. Like the, the kind of grounded feel and simplicity you were talking about thinking you know, in somebody else's hands it could feel overly melodramatic or something so it felt and um, yeah it was very affecting. I would be really interested to hear sort of your, your journey with the, the project and how and when you got involved with it. And, how, and you know, you. Were you sort of headhunted as the director or were you really
1: attached to Did you know Amy Keenan before? Or? No, what happened was um, I had met Liz Carlson, um, the producer, uh, quite a long time before and we talked about a couple of other projects we, we were interested in doing and she was br- really positive and encouraging to me, you know, very early on when I was still working in theatre or whatever and um, there were a couple of other things that just didn't happen and then she sent me this and I was already actually working on developing a script for another film. And um, and it kind of came my way and I read it and I just, I hadn't read the book. I absolutely loved the script straight away. I just was completely besotted with it. And and I just thought it was so, I mean the writing was so vivid. And, um, and so the next thing that happened was, well I then read the book and then I met with Ian McEwen. And he he had written the first, these the, that, that draft, he'd written five years before, and it had languished. Uh, he'd written it for Sam Mendes, uh, for Sam's company. It was commissioned by Neil Street. And then Sam got the first of the Bond movies, disappeared. I think it went to another director, and then it, it kind of hung around for a bit, as these as scripts sometimes do for no good reason. I mean, a series of accidents. and. Um, and 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 Liz had found Liz had bumped into Ian's age and Said what happened to that script? And you know got a hold of it. Anyway, she sent it to me. I met met Ian, um, and Ian was a little bit reticent at first. Not I hope. Well, he might be reticent because I hadn't directed something before, which is fair enough. But um, he was he was I think particularly reticent reticent because he'd been this script had been hanging around for ages, and he just thought oh, this is never this. Here we go. Here's another one. and That's, that's what it felt like. Like oh, here's another one lining up. All right then. Um, and then, <laughs> but we had a good chat and he was open, but guarded. And then uh, we talked about who would play the parts. And he was dead keen on Saoirse. She'd been in atonement as a 12 year old and he thought she was marvelous. I hadn't seen anything she'd done since Hannah, which, in which she was like 17 or something. So I didn't, uh, I didn't know what she was like. And just after that, Brooklyn came out I didn't know what she was like as as an adult, really, is what I'm saying. And so I went to see Brooklyn and I loved it. I thought it was such a beautiful, complete film and she was magnificent in it. And what was special about her was that she has the ability, which is really required for this film, of playing the social reality of the society she was in, but giving you so much underneath that, of course, on camera, if it all works, can really come out. And I knew that it was really important to have an actor who could, in both parts who could give you subtext because so much of it's unspoken so i just thought oh she's really wonderful so uh we met she was very keen to do it anyway because of her relationship with ian and she'd read the book ages ago and loved it um and then she came on board and once she came on board it all started to become a real thing so we then got finance and then and what was amazing about her was that she committed a year ahead and she didn't move she committed she said she was going to do it in the October, the following October, and the date stayed exactly the same for a whole year, which is pretty amazing, because she really, really wanted to do it. Um, and so that's how it all kind of then moved, moved forward.
0: Thanks. Hi, um, yeah, I, 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 I got the invitation to come in this evening quite late. Mm. Um, I'm really, really glad that I did. Um, I knew of the, knew the title yeah. before coming in, but I watched the trailer online before I came and, I, mm-hmm. and it, it kind of reminded me of, you know, that it was it, it, a little bit special, mm-hmm. potentially, you know, because obviously I haven't seen the whole thing, but when I came here this evening and I started watching it, I, uh, there, there are times when you you're not sure if it's kind of okay to be laughing.
2: <laughs>
0: and I was not laughing as much as I, other people around me. And that's unusual because normally <laughs> I, I laugh quite a lot. Um, but I was just wondering, you, you just said that you, 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 there was another project that you potentially were working on when you got the script for this and you read it and you, you fell in love with it. And I'm just wondering at that time, or perhaps at the beginning of the project, when you when you read the scripts and you fell in love with it as a, as a director I presume that in your in your mind you kind of you were already seeing what you could do mm. with what you've read yeah. so I'm wondering in conclusion mm-hmm. how close was the end product to what you had originally right. envisioned you would make Gosh.
1: that's yeah, it's really hard to remember i mean i i Yeah, it's quite close. (laughs) I think it is quite close. I mean, you never completely, I mean, for me anyway, I'm just not the kind of person who ever completely knows how it's gonna work because I'm quite, um, I think I'm quite intuitive. So I tend to create things as they go. Do you know what I mean? You know, for me, it's a process. So you come in with intuitions. And for me, it's important to try and define what the center, what the spine of your project is you know, what the key idea is, what the dynamic is, something that you you can always check everything in with. But then, of course, the contribution of the people I work with was so important. And, you know, I started with Susie, the production designer. We worked incredibly close on what we thought the key visual world was. And then when Sean came on board, I mean, he was just, you know, such an important part of it. So all of it built through that, but actually, if you'd shown me this now, I would say it's not that far off from the feel of what I, um, the feel of, of what I was after. But I think you know, again, the process, the politics, all of that stuff has its impact. And I mean, I I found the shift. I found that you know, I, I, I was, I mean, I I you know, I was learning on the job. I mean, how to manage a schedule properly is so important, isn't it? How you use your time um and and you know i had a lot to learn on that and actually that the results of that are i can see in certain places that certain things were rushed and not given the space and time they needed because we had to do it you know and that kind of stuff so obviously there are things that have turned out differently but i think it was i think i think the feel of it is 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 pretty close to what i'd imagined i mean it's important i just think it's really important whatever you do because i've got you know I've done a lot of theatre and had my fair share of terrible reviews and people walking out as well as things that have gone been received very well and my rela- what I've learned for me anyway is that my relationship to what I do is very different to what other people's relationship to what I do is and we all want to be loved and we all want everything we do to be appreciated. And the reality is it, it just doesn't work like that. And I've, my survival mechanism then to get through that without going completely bonkers over the years is to try and make sure that my relationship with what I've done has integrity. You know, and I feel that there's enough of me in what I've done with all of the things that you can't control in any process because it's, it's not all you, is it? You're working with other people. so. They're always bringing things, and you know, you, and some of those things are un unpredictable. Um, but for me, and so, so in the end of this, the thing that I, think I'm pleased about is, I think there's enough of me and what I wanted to do in it for me to be able to hold, hold my head up. Do you know what I mean? And I think, I think, I think, I think that's really important because when you put something out into the public realm, you just don't know. Everyone, else, the response is subjective, so.
2: Yeah, Dominique, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really, really appreciate it.
0: This podcast was recorded from an event as part of the Directors UK programme. Directors UK is the professional association of all screen directors. We now have over 6,000 members and our work involves campaigning, lobbying and supporting the craft of directing in the UK. To find out more, please visit www.directors.uk.com